Hello, and welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. I'm excited to be welcoming Elaine Clayton to the podcast. Elaine is an artist, author, and illustrator of several books focusing on empathetic, intuitive intelligence for both children and adults. Elaine's newest book, The Way of the Empath, How Compassion, Empathy, and Intuition Can Heal Your World, explores empathy and what tools we can use to help support and cultivate our ability to stay open and compassionate in our lives. To learn more about Elaine and her work, please see this episode's show notes. Elaine, thank you so much for joining me today. For those listeners who might not know who you are, would you mind introducing yourself? Introducing myself. Okay. Well, I'm Elaine Clayton and I'm an artist and author and I'm in the healing arts. So I'm a Reiki master and intuitive reader. And um, is helping others develop their intuitive intelligence and, and empathic awareness. So I write books about that, but I did for years write and illustrate children's books. So I'm an editorial artist and uh, really do love combining words and art. And so that's, and I'm a mother, I have two sons that are grown. What was life like for you growing up? How did you realize that this was your journey? So interesting how our lives, um, sometimes you hear that phrase or saying trust life. And I think it's true. The older I get, I look back at pieces. And I, so I'll just, before I tell you about some things that, that were indicators, um, I think we're, we're each a mosaic, a beautiful, you know, multifaceted mosaic. And so certain pieces light up as needed or in certain points of time. And some of our decisions that we make cause other pieces to light up. And anyway, I have that image, it's a wondrous image. But when I look back, I think of, um, I'm from Texas originally, small town. My dad was a doctor with the doctor's bag. It's right over there. And um, I think you can see the top of it right there. And um, so I am from a big family and, and loved from a very early age, loved watching people, looking at people, dealing with the energies of a lot of different people and drawing people. Um, My dad's mother, my maternal grandmother would sit and draw with us when we were with her. So she was, she thought it was really funny. Sometimes some of the portraits I did, like I, I, I was given the message that it was great to draw and it was, it was not threatening in any way, it was, it was valuable. So I drew as much as I could. And then also I had really intense dreams. My dreams were so intense and I had a pivotal moment where I was so overwhelmed and overcome by one dream. And, um, and it was, it was full of family. And I remember going out and this is a real 1960s kind of image because I was probably about six, five or six. I think I was probably five, walked out. My dad and mom were bad, bad company. So it was like a 1960s, you know, thing. And I I think my dad had on a turtleneck and he's like stirring drinks that were called um, grasshoppers or cream de mint. They had, they were green with a little bit of cream, white stuff on top. And he goes, what are you doing up? Because it really wasn't that late, but I'd been asleep for a few hours had this horrific dream. And I said, I had a nightmare. And he said, Oh, what was it about? So that was the first thing he showed curiosity. He didn't say go back to bed. He said, what was your dream about? That was very important. And I said, I can't tell you. And he said, why not? And I said, because I'll get in trouble. And he really turned and faced me and said, no, you can't get in trouble for your dreams. That was part two. So first of all, the, the compassionate curiosity response, genuine curiosity, and then letting me know that a dream is not something you can be blamed for. That's not the, what a overwhelming feeling of um, trying to get it out. Like as it, it was like a, a big ocean wave that came and finally I blurted it out. And he, he did chuckle a little because it had to do with his relationship with my mother, this dream. 
and it had religion and it, I mean, I'm telling you, it had big themes. And, um, and so that, that was also important. That was the third most important part that something ultimately extremely disturbing to me could also kind of have a funny side in that it's really not as scary as you thought it has. We can look at it in, at it in many ways. And so that started a lifelong connection with my father, especially about dreams, about how to look at them. And then later he became a psychiatrist after he was a regular, you know, family physician. And um, he never analyzed my dreams, but he taught me how to look at them. He would not cross boundaries by analyzing us or anything like that. So I learned a lot from that. And it created me an artist who wants to be in the healing arts. So that's kind of it. So you are an empath and I know we've talked before about how others can be, but for those listeners who might not know, can you describe what an empath is or what the characteristics are? Well, I would like to say that we're all empathic in some way. I mean, this is a spectrum. I mean, we're all living. And if we're not, you could take the worst sociopath, but they will say someone hurt their feelings. So on some level, we're all learning about what our feelings are and whether we have to live thousands of lives to evolve or whatever it is that creates our ability to care for others. That has to be said And this, this, like the book, The Way of the Empath that just came out in April that I wrote, isn't really seeking to say you're an empath, but you're not. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't want to do that. But what I would say is an empath is someone who has a predisposition, usually it, we're talking about a natural empath, to feel the feelings of others as if they were their own. So we have other ways of being empathic where let's say that you're uh, more mental energy empathic and we use that a lot too. Um, We might say, I don't know how it feels to be like uh, someone in Ukraine where a bomb is actually falling in my neighborhood and I, and I have the heat from it and the shrapnel from it blowing through the windows, but I can, I can understand that that would be a nightmare um, so that's that's a little bit of um, using the imagination, which also is in the realm of feeling. So that is a little bit of natural empathic sensing, but it's also a mental process whereby I don't have to necessarily feel like I'm in it, but I can guess from pictures and descriptions that I would not like it. So, um, but I would say if you're a natural empath, you just were always feeling stuff and you grew up so sensitive, but thinking everyone else was also feeling those things or noticing feelings happening in the room that nobody would acknowledge. And yet you're looking at someone upset or you're um, observing some tension that no one else seems to want to even look at. And, and they're not interested. Even if you brought it up, they're not interested. They don't see it or sense it. So empaths, people who feel like natural empaths will say, I felt like on the periphery of things and, and often very upset. And I had to carry that. And then for those who might not know, because I know for me, like sometimes I will be with people and I'll take on a lot. I'm a fixer. It's something I'm working on, but I love to try to get in there and try to fix people's problems. How do we, um, what's the difference, I guess, from like fixing or trying to help it from being an empath? Cause I think that there isn't like a clear line and I don't want listeners to be like, oh, I'm like, that's my problem. It's not a problem to have. It shows compassion and empathy when you do take on other people or try to help. But is there a difference between those two? No, they're not really, there aren't really hardline differences. It's very ethereal, actually. An empath, if you feel pain that you recognize at some point, hey, wait, this isn't my pain. It's that person is going through something, but something in you immediately wants to fix it because you don't, you, you can feel it. You want it relieved for them. Then you get into some of the practical things empaths have to grapple with, which is 
feeling it, understanding it's not yours, and then doing something about it. Now, what do you do about it? Can you fix someone else's issue? Some of us are are um, doers. We have um, we have a natural gift. You may be a natural born a miraculous fixer. You can get on it and do it. And part of compassion is to take action. However, I think what happens with empaths when it when it is that when it when it is problematic is when I see suffering and I think I am the fixer and I am the one with the answer and therefore it is on me. So two things like, and I think it's kind of biblical, so many things in, in ancient, you know, people trying to figure out from for, for thousands of years. So, you know, like thinking of um, the story of, uh, of uh, Jonah and the whale, you know, and he, he, he finally, he's caught and he, okay, I'll go to Nineveh. He's in Nineveh. His whole job was to fix Nineveh. The people were just doing everything wrong. And then he, and then they just don't care. They, they continue, even he's doing all this stuff for them. And he says to God, they're still awful. They're not doing anything they're supposed to do. And, and really the response was kind of, it's not, it's not your responsibility or, you know, Jonah, it's not all up to you. Well, Jonah would have a right to be uh, angry because, hey, you just invested all this time. Didn't God want me to go fix this? And then what do you mean? It's not all up to me. So what I think I get out of that as an empath is it isn't all up to you, but you can find ways in life to professionally be a fixer, to devote your days and your time in some capacity to actually fix or one or two volunteer um, experiences that are safe for you, that have safe boundaries for you that you know you can affect change. Otherwise, you are going to be miserable. <laughs> I mean, I can say from experience in most all empaths talk about this, you, you don't know it at first. You're young, you go through things, but you are caught up in all kinds of stuff trying so hard to fix it for somebody. And we all know no one can come here and fix me. I cannot be fixed by anybody, yet I can... I can choose to be helped and then find ways to get it. But usually we really can't do all that for someone else. But I think it works best for empaths to have situations with good boundaries. And we only learn it from hard experiences. I think you said the key word there, which is boundaries, which is even something that I am working on practicing as well. But how can you have empathy for someone and not allow your ego to tell you that you're responsible for someone else. Cause I think your ego sometimes can force you to think like I should do this or let me go kind of be the savior. I'm using that in quotes mm-hmm. listeners, okay. but mm-hmm. um, how, how do you work around that? So the ego is, is a really important part of who we are. So we are, we have some primal instincts uh, of survival and we go through stages of maturation where the ego is very necessary in helping us develop an identity and helping us reach aspirations and helping us um, mount up to some things that we may feel are challenging, but then we learn that we can do it. The ego plays a wonderful role. And it also sets sets us up for some of the worst, um, hardest lessons we could ever go through. So it comes hand in hand. So the ego is something just to be conscious of. And um, that's a lifelong process. So so on one hand, we say, as an empath, I, I, I might go through a thing where I say, I feel this terrible, really beautiful and terrible love for someone you don't even have to know them. You could just be driving in the car and, and someone's crossing the road and you can tell they're homeless and just something in your heart is so, so feeling it. Um, it then, then there's a conversation that happens between the empathic self and the ego. And, and parts of the ego come alive. And so you get to decide how 
much will I let the ego take control over the situation? I think the trick is being consciously aware that we have those aspects and, and helping them negotiate. That's why I said, if you choose a profession where you are able to, to help others, that allows the ego to express itself in some way where you feel successful or you feel genuinely helpful. And yet at the same time, the empath gets to feel that it isn't being um, sidelined. It's too painful to not listen to the empathic urges. So I think that the, the ego, again, is just something to learn about, something to grapple with that um, has a shadow side and a light side like almost everything else, if that makes sense. It does. And then with the ego, I think that there's the other side, which is talking about vulnerability mm -hmm. and we all, it's hard to be vulnerable. I think we lose that part of ourselves at a young age when we're kind of told to stop being creative and imagining like when mm -hmm. I've listened to some of your other interviews and you put it really in a great way of how is math making you feel or what do yeah. you feel like, you know, when you're in science, it's not about that. It's really like, did you do a good job? Did you get a score? We lose that kind of aspect. And I think by losing that creativity and that vulnerability, we kind of forget as an adults to take that armor off. Um, why is it so important to be honest and to emit vulnerability? Well, um, that's beautiful how you just described all of that, because, um, yes, we are conditioned to not focus on how we feel. So let's pretend for a minute that we're made up of a complex working of some rational and logical processing and then some creative and uh, emotional and really um, part of the mind that doesn't really have a rational explanation, but it has a knowing all the same. So it's emotional, empathic, intuitive, creative. It's all in one place. And it hopefully both sides of our brains are in harmony. What happens in school when you get the message very immediately that there is a shame-based culture environment here where you're a winner or a loser, that's very much based on the ego. The ego is pretty black and white. Um, when we get conditioned that way, you're either going to get a star or you're going to be shamed. So you, you get pretty on um, fight or flight mode very early on. My hope is that we're doing some things to become more aware of the fact that actually learners don't learn as well in that environment because fight or flight causes part of the brain to shut down. Uh, in my first book uh, on intuition, uh, well, it's not really the first, it was the second, but with Simon and Schuster making marks discover the art of intuitive drawing, Dr. Lori Nadell, I used a quote of hers about that, about the fight or flight thing. So, so the, the ego um, being what controls most things in our culture will set that up. So we get this sort of shaming, uh, fear-based learnings that starts early. And that is sad. I, and I'm hoping that we're getting past it and we're nurturing the creative, emotional, uh, conscious awareness aspect of our humanness more than we ever were. I'm hoping that that's happening more and more. And how do we, what was your, how did you ask that question again? What do we do about the ego with that? Or why is it so important to be honest and to admit vulnerability? Okay. Okay, right. Sorry, I, I got no, lost going down the garden path. Yeah, so, so the ego wants to say never be vulnerable. And there's an aspect to our humanness that, that, that's useful in that we do have fight or flight for a reason. We do have uh, an alert system. If we truly are vulnerable, it's there to serve us. You, can't be, you can be too close to the fire. You can be in a place that you shouldn't be. And, and, and so all that is important. The ego hates us to be in a dangerous situ situation. So in some ways, the ego protects us. But when we talk about vulnerability, we think of it as a weakness when ultimately we're all going to die. We're all vulnerable. This is ridiculous for us to pretend that we're not. Why should I 
see telling people honestly how I feel as a threat to me. Well, there are reasons why we get we feel threatened because the whole world jumps on and says you're stupid or you're and whatever. It's, it's scary, I think, to be vulnerable and open yourself up because there's a fear of rejection. There's fear a fear of being made like looking embarrassed, not smart, yeah. not this, yeah. not that, all of these things. But then when you don't say what you feel, I know for me personally, I ruminate, it eats me up. And then it's just, it's not healthy because I go back and replay and think I should have said this, or Absolutely. I didn't tell somebody how I really felt about them. And it haunts you in a weird yes. way, but then it's yes. a cycle that you're like, when the time comes again, you almost talk yourself out of it. Cause you're like, well, what if they don't feel like this? Or it's scary to be open. Um, I think of the image of you're taking your armor off and like, mm-hmm. if they shoot at you, like it's going to go straight for the heart. You have no protection when mm-hmm. you're being super vulnerable, but on the flip side, when you are vulnerable, you walk away thinking, I did everything I could in that situation. I said everything. I have no regrets. So it's a fine line, at least in my experience. I, I agree. I mean, and, and so it's a, we learn through practice. So, and you can't, you, those things that haunt us, we can spiritually overcome them because you can spiritually put light on that. You can put light on your entire path, your entire life, every mistake, every missed opportunity, every time you hurt someone, every time someone hurt you, we can psycho-emotionally deal with it better when we get a little bit above it. That's one of the reasons why I do these stream drawing meditation, uh, intuitive readings is like, get, get out of ourselves a little and, and let there be some love in all of the stuff, even the mistakes, even, even the pain and hurt. Because why be haunted? I don't want to be burdened that way. That also is not going to serve me. And so we only learn through doing, and yes, I'll say a lot of the times I've ever been vulnerable, anytime really, you say what you feel, you allow yourself to be seen for who you really are, you take a major risk, and someone usually will 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 puncture it on some level somebody will but the minute you realize you know what that didn't really kill me actually i feel so much better that i'm just being authentic that 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 it doesn't let the darts fall off you know and i would say the first time i experienced that was um trying to do children's books you know i was very young it was a different time you could take your portfolio to new york and but to even try that. But at the time, and it was a little bit of my maturation, I I need a career. I've got to do some hard things. I want this. This is my dream. I want it. My ego did help me do it because I would have rather died than not do it. And I did it. And I, and I, but there was never a time where you, you were free of exposure in some way. So I think when we're authentically doing what we love or saying what we feel our heart wants us to say, even if later we decide, oh, I, why did I say that? You know, we only know when we know. We're only conscious when we are. So it takes time to become more conscious. But ultimately, whenever we're vulnerable, um, you're, you're just going to have to accept that there is an exposure element, but it doesn't really kill you. It, there are ways in which we can survive, right? Um, you know, it's like the fairies. Um, I don't know. They say this is an Irish thing. So there's, there's this battle of Ben Bolben. It's this big, you know, beautiful land formation. And it looks like it has a little doorway, like a fairy door. And there was a terrible battle. And the, the side that was losing and being massacred and bludgeoned, they said, well, well, actually, you didn't kill us. We just became invisible. And I love that because it's it was the beginning of fairies, like the idea that the fairy realm it existed, even if you couldn't see it. So you could sort of play with be playful with some of these things. There are they real. Is this really the end of the world when I'm criticized or when someone does a pot shot or when you're trolled. Yeah. Some people are jumping off of a building because of this. So people, people have to be aware that they can kill someone with this stuff. But at the same time, we can 
with ourselves, find a place to be comfortable with a certain amount of vulnerability. And you don't want to expose yourself in a way that is ultimately destroying you. Do I want to live with an abuser throwing furniture or hitting? Absolutely not. Why would you stay in that? So there are a lot of reasons why people feel, feel trapped and emotionally stay trapped, especially empaths. But the first thing is get away from the danger. So there are times when we need to talk about vulnerability as actually really a very important thing to get away from danger. So I read your book, The Way of the Empath, and what came out for me is to be a lot more aware in moments when I'm around people, how do I feel? Because I think Mm -hmm. for a long time, I would just kind of mute my feelings, especially my gut feelings. Mm -hmm. And I think- It's really interesting as I've talked to more and more podcast guests and have really started to explore my own journey, how your gut has neurons. And it's like the first indicator that something's off, even though your head might not want to listen to it, but that gut reaction and taking a step back, you talk about really listening to your body. Mm -hmm. And so lately I've really, sometimes when I'm out or at a place, I know I'm I don't really love being there. I'm ready to go home. Mm -hmm. But now that I'm paying so much more attention to those small indicators, it's like, I feel it instantly. I don't feel good. The energy here isn't great. I'm, this isn't healthier. This isn't good for me. I'm ready to leave. And Mm -hmm. taking that power back to be like, you know what? It was great seeing everyone. I'm going to go. It was so interesting when I, after reading your book, how these small cues, I think I used to mute, I've now put on full volume. And I would encourage other listeners to read the book and to really start to pay attention to those indicators because we all have them. Like you said, it's a spectrum. We just over time have learned how to mute them or maybe not pay attention. Yeah. So like when we were young and you think of yourself in a school classroom environment, very young, very young. And your mind isn't even sure what it's supposed to be doing, but your stomach is definitely hurting or some other sensation. I find that there might be someone I care about, but around them, I am getting a central nervous system cortisone bomb going off. Like I feel nervous in my system, but I'm trying to overcome it because this is a nice bird. There's so many wonderful things about people. So, but I have to acknowledge when I feel that way, First of all, why, and and really go into a meditation to try to open up to receive why. Is it, is it, um, you can always get to the kernel of it. You just have to spend a little time to do it. Um, And then what to do after that, how to, how to let them know you do love and care about them, but, but allow yourself some level of compartmentalization of your life, some level of having boundaries. Not everyone should be in your inner circle. Sometimes you're in an era of life where it's not good to be around a certain person. Maybe later it comes where you can be and you can handle it better or you can handle it like when you're getting allergy shots every two weeks, a tiny shot, you know, it's up to you to know and and we're each so different. And then there are other things that go on. So much is going on when you're around even one other person in an environment, so many layers of knowledge, opportunities to know and understand energy that is coming as invisible usually. Um, But let's say you take someone who has been hurt in some way and maybe they're sort of sociopathic or something, but they've become really schooled at noticing every little gesture you make and registering what you feel and how you feel about it so that they can get in there and exploit it to some degree either bond with you on it, on something you love or on something that you're afraid of. Oh yeah, me too. Or uh, some other, you know, machination, like some way in which they want to use your own emotion. So we have to be careful. Yeah. We have to watch just to know if we're being played too, because empaths usually if they're, if your heart is open, you want that connection like a five-year-old looking at someone from across the room with big eyes, you know I mean? We don't want a separation. We don't even sense a separation. And yet, um, 
you have to you have to navigate through you know relationships encounters environments lots of stuff lots of stuff my follow up question to that is how can we as a society become more empathetic more knowledgeable because I think that lately there's been a big shift, especially coming out of the, well, we're still in the pandemic, but coming into this new stage of looking at things, looking at trauma, understanding how we're feeling and people, especially athletes are coming out and talking a lot more celebrities about their mental health or how they're feeling. So I think the conversation has started, but it's really, we need to kind of hone in a little bit more and open the doors to talk more about being empathetic and listening to our bodies and, you know, all the things we were talking about today, what steps can we start to take from your point of view? Well, um, I'm watching your generation and, and, you know, slightly older and slightly younger, and you all are full of such, you know, the spark of life is coming through. And there are certain ways in which you're driving the agenda to, to force conversation and to um, actually have, have not very much tolerance for deception. We're kind of sick of collectively already. You can notice we're in a big shift. It is spiritual. I think that's how I take it. Um, And I, I've been waiting for it probably most of my life, you know, sensing it. And um, what I think it comes with is, There's a macrocosm and microcosm element. So collectively, as we say, we're we're tired of being gaslit. You know, everyone has that term and that's a wonderful term. It's being overused a little bit, I think, or misused sometimes. Um, But ultimately people are saying what you brought up earlier. I don't like being lied to. I don't, I, I think it's important to be honest. Honesty is becoming important. Don't snow me with your campaign for your ad, for your whatever you want me to buy. Don't exploit me to feel like I need something I don't need or, or whatever it is. Or the worst that I think is the circle talking where you're not really addressing, you're just talking around the topic instead of just getting, and it's almost like you're trying to confuse the listener. Oh yeah. Oh and yeah. And you know what? You can go to a meeting. How many times in my life have I sat at a meeting? And a meeting is usually about someone is in control and wants to keep it. So sometimes a meeting gets some cool stuff gets decided. You feel that you feel that, you know, hey, this is great. And we're going to go off and we're going to do something good. But a lot of times it's a total lie. It's a fake topic, fake agenda and everything in politics. There's a lot of fakery. Oh, yeah. We're so sick of it. You know, I can't literally politics gives me like. It raises my blood pressure lately. Um, But because the lie in many ways, because I I also think I just loved your definition of meeting. Like it's really someone wanting to keep power, but they still Mm -hmm. have a meeting to seem democratic or to seem like they're opening to listening to others. But sometimes you've gone into meetings where, you know, the decision's been made. They're just doing yeah, stuff, exactly. cross, you know, cross their T's, dot their I's to make it look like, oh, we cared about what you were saying. But right. I, I do hope that younger generations don't fall prey to, I think it, we always, younger generations always start off really like idealistic, excited. And then when you start getting into the working world and paying taxes and this, that, and everything else, I think we start to shift. And I wish that just like when we're younger, where we still have more creativity and imagination that we keep that with us as we get older and still believe that we can do good. We can fix. I I agree because I would say this about that, 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 and I, and I think, and we look at our political system and there's some real trouble about it. And yet it's, it is based on ideals that are ancient, really, and kind of new at the same time. It's like an archetypal theme. We do have good stuff in life and bad stuff. And we have we can't even thrive unless we have a sense of, in a way, living for what we believe is good. There's some force in us that really does want that. And a lot of people do. They're, they're more dedicated to the destruct. They're into the destruction sort of thing. And that maybe can be used for good too, ultimately. But I will say that 
when you're young and like you said, idealistic and you can sort of see things where, where they're not true, what happens is, and I, I saw it watching hippies that babysat me and then they became um, yuppies because they, they, you know, the whole culture shifted to, Hey, let's get rich. Shoulder pads came out, the hair changed and then they, they got rich. And so now the cycle perpetuated. It was a little better because they actually brought some new ways to the table. They did. They, they broke a mold in a lot of ways, but you could also argue that, you know, they kind of joined what they would never, we thought they never would, but they're, they did their thing and they're still doing it. So, so some veil was lifted too in that. So what will happen with the younger generations in a spiritual way, I think the world is going to happen and we are in extreme times. We've got extreme weather, extreme nature. Um, we've got war. Extreme we've got, views on both sides. We've got polarization. Yeah. yeah. Most of my paintings the last decade have been about the polarization. And I derived some of that from you know, ancient like Hopi prophecy, Edgar Casey, who was a mystic in 1920s. And he said, poles are going to sh shift. I mean, and, and, and now you can see that the magnetic, the pole thing is really messed up. We're in really interesting times and we don't necessarily have to always do anything we can let you all grow up and watch as things happen and how will we deal with it it could be the structures that perpetuate the same cycles they're kind of breaking down wouldn't you say and do we really want it all to break down no because if the hospital system collapsed what about a sick baby what about you know and so so we're it's very complex some things have to come down and be remade but it's going to hurt if things really break down further. And what I would say is it's really easy to watch the news and look at things and go, well, what can I do? I don't, I, you know, I'm one person. Um, and then you don't do anything. I've said multiple times on the show, I'm a grandchild of Holocaust survivors. My grandparents witnessed and experienced what happens when people don't speak up or say, oh, it's never going to, nothing's really going to come from this. Like, mm -hmm. just look at all of history. Um, but I think what we could each of us commit to every day is one act of kindness, whether that is just smiling, opening doors for people saying, hello, if you see someone that needs help asking them, I think it's a building block. And when you start to be, have that habit of being empathetic or being kind, and you don't know if your one act of kindness that day might have a ripple effect. For others. Absolutely. And, and that was your original question, really. And then I kind of went off. You said, what can we do? And so there is, and I talked about the macrocosm aspect. And then now the microcosm, like you just put it, I believe deeply that the quietest person just sitting on a porch somewhere in their heart being loving may be holding the whole world together. And we only value so-called winners money maker, I mean, all the stuff, all the stuff that makes it look good. When actually those tiny gestures probably are what keeps us together. And actually I had done, I put on YouTube today, uh, yesterday, a um, meditation. I'm trying to do stream drawing meditations in the morning at the beginning of the week. And I did one that um, was like an intuitive message for the week. And it really was about this topic and it had, grief and like kind of war imagery and even personal possible strife and, and mobility, which can be conflict. Like when you're, um, when you're having to make changes cause you're just so uncomfortable or you're so uncomfortable, you you're begging God, please give me a change strife. And then on the right side of the image, which felt like, like where we're moving toward, um, I'll just show you here. I thought that looked like the Dalai Lama. It just looked like the Dalai Lama to me, you know, and he's like dancing and he's pointing upward. And, and I thought, oh, we can look at this as individuals because I think that message for me visually would be how it spoke to me would be, yeah, we look at the news, can't help it. You see stuff and it's important. 
uh, the invasion that's happening could be, I mean, it's hell and it has been Armageddon for anyone who died or lost their children or whatever, it's atrocities. And what do I do? I'm sitting here in this other place. So what do I do? Well, like you said, kindness. And I think that Dalai Lama image was like, in your own way, he's always got mirth. He's always got a spark in his eye. Don't give up on love. You carry, you cho we choose every day. Am I going to be nurturing love or am I going to be the opposite? And in Kabbalistic terms, you know, and I'm really in love with ancient Jewish mysticism. Um, it's, do you have the will to receive or the will to bestow? That's a constant push and pull. If I try to say to myself, I want to really nurture the will to bestow, to, to, to give to others in some small way even. Just start by that, opening the door. I mean, I, I asked my son to do that once in junior high. I would drop him off and I noticed kids just going in and there was sort of a cold emotional climate with that whole thing. And I said, you know, just to open the door for someone. And I would watch. And do you know what started happening? I would watch people not even acknowledge that he opened the door and there he was opening it. If you would go and no one seemed to say hi to him or anything within a few days, others were opening the door. It was true. And I, it really made me think, you know, at the stop sign, let someone else go first or whatever, you know? So it's, it is those little things. I think they matter more greatly than we ever will realize so I'm a big walker. I love going on walks. Females are, are not always the nicest to each other. Mm -hmm. There's a competition. There's a, yes. Yeah. Rivalry vibe. And we don't really compliment each other. And what I have really taken is when I'm walking, if I see someone, I'll be like, hey, I love your shoes. Or yesterday I was walking and this girl had beautiful hair color. Like I, mm -hmm. I literally asked her who her colors was and I was like I love your hair color and you just saw this light like thank mm -hmm. you like for mm -hmm. recognizing for saying something and it's mm -hmm. so small little acts that when I turned around you could see how she was walking was like oh wow I felt acknowledged or yes. appreciated or whatever it is and when I was you know your book yes it's called the way of the empath but then it says how compassion empathy and intuition can heal your world and I think that all of us, the point of the show, how this all started was really trying to create more empathy and kindness through conversation, through learning about one another to try to make the world a little better of a place. This was my way of trying to do something. There's a thousand ways we could continue having this, but I think it, your work is so important and how you've grown from, yes, you started with children's books, but you do so much to try to spread like your gift and knowledge to so many. So thank you for that. Well, and I thank you because with this platform, you allow all this to just ripple from your heart out and you're, you know, allowing people like me to come in and, and have a voice. And, and then, you know, it, it, I, I really appreciate you acknowledging me because there are days, even though there are days, because I do this more spiritually than sort of business head, you know, like I don't get everyone's email address so I can get them. I mean, I, I, I just want to impart this kind of shift, you know, emotional and empathic thing. And some days I feel like it's too hard. It's, um, you know, I get weary. The world is full of some weary energy and it can feel really despairing. And I I think a lot of people are feeling it and, um, and it, so, so that is a beautiful thing that you said. And sometimes, you know, I will tell you, I remember telling, uh, I worked as an, uh, empath and, you know, intuitive reader and Reiki master at, with this, um, wellness center. And it was on fifth Avenue, uh, behind the Flatiron building and a grandmaster who had trained so many generations of people. And he was from China and taught, all the four major ways of Kung Fu and Wusu and all that. And our people would go to him for healing, but the people who trained under him would also say he is a very dangerous man. Like they knew he, he was, but to you, he would look like just this peaceful guy, you know, with Jade necklace and whatever. Well, I remember telling him once how frustrated I was that I was speaking and, and people were not listening. And he said, stop talking. 
And I said to me, oh no, because I'm just learning how to talk. I had to learn through time to start talking. So why should I stop talking? But I took it and thought what he was saying was when your energy is not effective in a certain way, withdraw and preserve your energy. That's a very martial arts kind of thing. Again, the energy is invisible, but there are, there are uh, indicators of it and responses that we get and body language and all that stuff. And I realized sometimes if I embody love the best I can, it will do what it has to do. You don't always, again, it goes back to the ego. You don't have to do anything. Just be, just be. Um, and also you will then know where is a good place for you to be. Cause sometimes if no one listens, no one wants to hear you. They don't even feel comfortable with you being you, Get out, you know, withdraw, go somewhere else. Not every place is right for us. Yeah. Not every, and sometimes you have to endure it because you're in graduate school or you're getting the, whatever the certificate for that, because you have a plan for how to enact and how to actualize your dreams. But Okay, you might have to endure stuff. I know when I was a mother of young children, you don't get anything you want. You don't even get to go to the bathroom when you want because they have needs that are important. And it's a very hard thing. It's boot camp in a way, if you're really present. And there are stages where we have to endure, but if you can assess and you feel that you're not effective and you can't be yourself, you get to question and make a plan for how to be somewhere else too. Yeah. So before we wrap up, you have had an amazing career. You have written and illustrated several children's books. You've worked with authors such as Pulitzer Prize winning author Jane Smiley and the author of Wicked, Gregory McGuire. Mm -hmm. Where do you want your career to go or what's next for you? Oh boy, that's such an interesting thing because I, I really do try to do what I love. I want to do what I love. So I've cultivated what I love as best I can. And like I said, there were periods of time where I couldn't do everything that I love because I had to do other things, but, but, or I would do the other thing I love while I'm trying to cultivate. Yeah. You know, it's just kind of, we, we do put things together um, or, you know, you look at what the world is doing. How can you, how do you fare doing what you love with that? And plus I'm getting older. So what, what are my possibilities? So it's, it's a thing I think about a lot, um, but I, if I can do what I want to do, as far as I know right now, I would continue in the healing arts, doing intuitive readings, or it's very worthy and gratifying for me. It's magical because I don't, you know, when psychic stuff happens or mediumship, it's so, oh my gosh. And if it in some way enhances someone's life, what could make me happier, you know? And, um, so I love doing that. I love Reiki. I love the healing arts. I love my artwork being in the service of that too, in some way transforming a space or people as they gaze at the art. Um, I write if I, I write personally dream journaling and other things. And if I always approach writing as what is needed, if there's something needed and something could or should come through me, I don't even want to do it if it's not necessary. I don't want to do a book that isn't needed. So that is a, that's a mystical process because if I'm meant to do one, it will come through. I'd also like things in my own personal life to develop in ways that, you know, probably everyone relates to through COVID. There was a lot of sheltering, you know, a lot of cocooning. And, um, and I did write the way of the empath while I was in that, because why not? You know, I did a lot of artwork and stuff in that too. But that's extreme. And so I don't really know how I have to do my career um, sort of aspirations as I see also what the world is doing. You know, because let's let's say if you're an artist in Ukraine, you might I think there are some artists that are there. They stayed, you know, they, they you can't move us out of our place. I've heard of that. It's kind of amazing. But in general, what is the role of art if you have to flee with just the clothes on your back? So art itself serves in different ways. We can over here do art that might help people feel more for a war torn, you know, or for anything around locally even. 
But I think what our purpose is, our sole purpose um, changes as, as the world around us changes too. So I don't know, you know, honestly, I just hope to keep doing what I love. I want to be, I want to be around people more than I was because I couldn't really do in-person readings. It was all, you know, Zoom or by phone, which is fine, but Reiki too, uh, some clients, but not much. I'd like to get where I can be around people. And then what about you? Do you, did you sense that also? Do you feel like something you're hoping that we can interact now in ways that we couldn't for a few years? Yeah. I think that I used to love to like be out and be social and now I find it exhausting. It's hard to kind of get motivated. Um, Oh my gosh, it is. It's like, we don't have the skill for it. We have to rebuild it. It's like the endurance. Like I can handle certain parts, but then when I'm ready to go, like I'm leaving, I don't care if other people want to say like, I am going home. Um, so that, that, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, for me, I really want to build this podcast. I want this to be, had such amazing guests and such phenomenal, inspirational conversations. And so really growing this so people can learn and um, grow with it. So that's kind of where I'm putting my time and energy. And of course I have my regular job, which I'm enjoying and learning a lot. So, and I think just kind of focusing on me, mm-hmm. I come to realize I help and give a lot of others and it's mm-hmm. time for me to stop being such a giving tree and put up boundaries and all these habits that I think that during the pandemic, a lot of healthier habits, choices kind of went out the window because you were just so happy to see someone. You didn't really care if that if it didn't work with your schedule or you were just happy to be around people. And now it's how do you still protect your power and your time, but still go out and see the world and grow on your terms, on your terms. Yes. And I can tell you, it, it's not that you're not going to be the empathic fixer, one who has the gift to fix. It's, it's that you're going to start doing it in ways that are optimal for you. And by that, I mean healthy, rewarding, emotionally um, safe, physically mm-hmm. safe, all those things, psychologically safe. Yeah, you that align have, more. With- yeah, it's like your Garden of Eden gets to be your Garden of Eden and you don't have, you can allow and disallow what isn't, you know, you get to decide. And it's so true during the pandemic, it was like, it was kind of emergency mode and there is some PTSD now. We have not even dove into the trauma, I think, of the past few years. I think that's going to take time and, but I am happy that we're all starting to talk more about trauma and experiences because I think it will open the door to have a lot more vulnerable conversations in society. And I hope that we can heal together instead of pointing fingers. Cause right now we're definitely still in the pointing fingers kind of stage. Yeah. yeah. We can put out, you know, from our heart, 